welcome again to the Springs. As Pastor Alberto said, my name is Peter, and I serve as one of the leaders here in the church alongside him and our elders. Now, today we carry on with week five, chapter five of our study in the book of Acts called People of the Way. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, as he claimed and as he verified. And if we are his people, then we are, as they were called in the book of Acts, before they were called Christians, we were called Christians, we are people of the way. And a simple implication is that either we're walking in his ways or we're fakers. Now, let that harsh little nugget right there provide a perfect segue into chapter 5 of Acts today. Because today we encounter the Ananias and Sapphira scene. If anyone is familiar with that, you have context. But I can just say, to provide instant context, that this is an intense chapter, which is probably fitting that so many of us are sitting in tents, right? All right, anyway, let's stand to our feet to honor God's word. Need these lighthearted moments there. We're actually going to start with chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 1 of chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after as it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con- contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold this land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, now we're going to pass out the offering buckets. I'm just kidding. You guys can be seated. Now, that was a, uh, a purposeful, lighthearted moment of fun. 
in a, a, a subject matter that is admittedly serious and sobering. And, and in all honesty, I trust that you can approach the Word of God with bravery and dig deep for a special blessing today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to approach you with reverence. Help us to see ourselves with clarity. And may your will be done in us as in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, the the title of my message is Radical. Now, as I move from the, the top to the bottom of our passage, preaching through it, we'll address three main things. Number one, the radical exchange. Number two, radical deception. And finally, radical reverence. Now, when you read the story in Acts chapter 4 and you see people giving everything, selling everything away, giving all their things, all, all of who they are to, to God and laying it at the apostles' feet, in that context, the word radical is, is kind of soft and cozy, right? And then you read in chapter 5 and see about this one couple who gives a decent portion, maybe even half of their life savings over to God, which is more than I've ever even thought about giving to God, and yet they're killed on the spot. Imagine giving to God what amounts to half of all your possessions or more, and not just garnering an unfavorable response from God, right? That would be a little disheartening, but the swift judgment of immediate death. This is jarring. Let's admit it. But I want to, before we even dig back into this, I want to do some hard introspection, asking the question, why is this jarring to us? Why is this so strange? I think one of the main reasons is that we're not accustomed to something like this because we're accustomed to a faith, a a type of Christianity that's not necessarily the real and true thing delivered once for all to the saints. We're, we're often accustomed to a little bit of like a, a Western light Christianity. And so we, we read things like this, and it doesn't fit. And let me just point out, as we read this story, two kind of hidden presumptions that we often harbor as we read the Bible. Two myths, and allow me before we get back into our text to, to play mythbuster, if you will. Myth number one, God wants your best. God doesn't just want your best. God wants your all, which means your best, your worst, and everything in between. Now, if, if, you, if you think, oh, that's just kind of silly nuance, just kind of making a distinction between best and all, let me warn you that perhaps Ananias and Sapphira thought it was a silly distinction too. But God wants your all. He wants you. Jesus wants you with a passion and a fire that is extreme, to say the least. Many of us have have suffered under the feeling of feeling unwanted. But make no mistake, God wants you. He wants you bad. He wants you with what the Bible describes uh, as a jealous love that's perfect in its righteousness and purity. 
Jesus wants you. He wants your life. And that's why he laid down his precious life to purchase your life and to lay claim to your all. And when you give him your all in faith, Jesus alone has the power to, to, to apply his righteous and atoning blood to cover over and exterminate the harmful things about your person and to apply his indestructible life to resurrect the things about you that he designed and that he desires to grow in you and flourish as you know him. This is exciting. Jesus wants your all, not just the best that you think you can give him today. Myth number two, Christianity is a nonviolent religion. And we think things like that, and then we come to Acts chapter 5, and we're like, why would God be killing people? That's not right. Simple reason. Christianity is not a nonviolent religion. Christianity begins and ends with violence. It just so happens that the part we are uh, called to participate in missionally, our missional stewardship, if you will, is not violent. And that's part of the problem of Christian history and the Crusades and all that. But make no mistake, Christianity began with violence. Jesus willingly suffered violence on the cross on our behalf. That's the entire framework of our faith. Jesus died for our sin. That's everything. That's how our faith started. The wages of sin is death. We, we are owed death, and Jesus took that very death on himself, willingly on the cross as our substitutes. That is the gospel. So that he could give us his life. And if we don't live in the context of the violence that we inflict in our sin, it's not just some bad stuff, it's not just some bad ideas. If we don't live in the context of what we spread around violently from our thoughts to our words to our actions, and what we deserve then the faith in Jesus becomes a sort of neutered, therapeutic lie. Now you might say, hey, Pastor Peter, what do you really think? Well, well, it's that, but it doesn't stop there because Jesus is coming back to judge sin and sinners alike. Read Revelation. It's the most violent book of the Bible. It's the last one in the Bible. Now, why am I saying all this? We either place our faith in the violence that Jesus took upon himself on the cross, or we await the righteous violence of the final judgment to come. And, and, and I don't want you to be scared. That's not what church is for. But scared is better than irreverent. We don't scare ourselves into loving God. But irreverent love is not love. No one's ever said, oh, I'm so afraid of hell that I automatically love Jesus. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. But we can't love our Savior without knowing what he saves us from. This precious Savior who would, he would give his blood and, and wreck hell to pull us out of the pit. This demands a type of reverent and holy love that only he can produce. Now, before we go into our, the rest of our text I promise I'm getting there. I want you to pray with me. There's, there's life and death and the power of the tongue. Whether you're sitting at home or you're sitting in tents, in tents, would you pray this with me? Just repeat after me. Lord, renew my mind 
Lord, your word is true. You are who you say you are. I am who your word says I am. Thank you for life. Help me to not waste it. Be glorified in me. All right. Thank you for praying that. Now, let's consider the radical exchange. And as, and as long as I took to get to point one, point one is my longest point. At least it's not as hot as it was last week. Amen. So, verse 34 we need to consider the radical exchange that sets the tone for this, this incident in chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 34, there was no, not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. See, they were giving everything. And that, that's what God wants of you and me, too. He, he doesn't just want us to give all that we, we can give, but all that we are. I give myself away so you can use me. That, that, that always is awesome for me. I love the, the, the radical simplicity of person-for-person person offering. That's what Jesus does. He wants this radical exchange. He initiated it. And these, these people laying everything down at the apostles' feet, make no mistake, this was not communism. First of all, it wasn't given to the government. And next, it wasn't forced out of people's hands. If you read closely, you'll see that it was radical and nevertheless voluntary. That's why Peter says to Ananias, while it remained unsold, was it not yours? Also, you need to understand that this moment in Acts 5 was a special moment in history where people are giving everything over. This is not, has never been understood to, to be the, 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 the basic standard for Christian living. It was special here. Instead, in most of Christian history, Christians that read the Old Testament to the New Testament consider the tithe as the necessary minimum standard of Christian living. Not giving everything over literally like this. The tithe, the first one-tenth of my income I give to the church. This has been basic Christianity and giving since the beginning. And so Acts Acts 5 is special. But only if you understand this, that the, the tithe is a minimum of what I give. And any offering... To, to people in need, especially my brothers and sisters in Christ, is seen as my responsibility on top of that to give in faith. Now, let me brag on this church for a second in regards to, in regards to tithing and offering in 2020. You know, so many people say, like, when there's a great test, when there's a great test, often there's a, a greater chance for true faith. So, COVID hits six months ago. Our elders get together to prepare our books for what is sure to be, as our mentors tell us, a a financial challenge in the church. And so we start to prioritize and consolidate, which we're still doing. But what we've seen is a remarkable consistency of tithing and giving of first fruits from you. In our, in our, Our bills are continuing to be paid, and we're continuing to honor God and make disciples with our money 
as much as with our music and our words and our relationships. And beyond that, we've also set up a special fund this year called the COVID-19 Benevolence Fund for special needs beyond that within our congregation especially. And you've given thousands of dollars to that fund that we're still distributing. And so I can say clearly, clearly that a special work of God is happening in us, like in Acts chapter 5, and it is every bit as Christian. The highest praise I can give you is, man, you're so Christian. And here's how the tithe relates to giving my all to Jesus. When I give my tithe to Jesus, it's a demonstrated faith seed that says, God, this 10%, this seed represents that all of who I am is yours. And if I do it in faith, he honors it like that. Now, now one other thing about this special moment is that even though everything was given to the apostles' feet, literally everything in this special moment in Acts 5, even that's not, though that's not the standard practice for all of us now, nevertheless, the outcome that it produced has always been God's heart and his desire. So verse 34 of chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them. Now consider, if you flip back to Deuteronomy 15, you'll see some similar words at the very beginning of the institution of the called out people of God. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord God is giving to you. For an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments as I command you today. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in your towns or within your land that the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. But you shall open your hand. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in the land he's given you. See, God knows that there is a connection between my heart and my hand and my wallet. And I say, if this was true as a standard for Israel, then how much more, as you go from Deuteronomy to Acts, how much more for the new Israel, the church in Acts, or the church in San Marcos, how much more? See, if, if you take it personally, consider yourself personally, though, and I look at my own life and my own struggles and faith in this area and, and the radical exchange, the problem is, is I rarely see the other's need as my responsibility, right? Maybe it's uh, something I can do, maybe, but I don't rarely see intimately that I am my brother's keeper. And contextually, that's a problem because Jesus saw my need as his responsibility. And Jesus paid it all. And thus, as it relates to the response of the radical exchange, all to him I owe. God's desire for the radical exchange only gets stronger from the Old Testament to the New. Matthew 16 Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Luke 14, 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first down and sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark 16, to the rich young ruler looking on him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, only everything, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus wanted to give him this promise. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But these words saddened this young man and he went away grieving for he possessed much property. See, these are the words that would come from a cult leader or the very son of God demanding, even as he's powerfully facilitating a radical exchange. It's what makes Acts chapter 5 so jarring. Number two, the radical deception. So Ananias and Sapphira here see this radical, powerful, unique thing happening, and they get in cahoots for a special secret arrangement to, to keep back some. Now, the Reina Valera, the old Spanish version of this says that Ananias sustrajo un porción, una porción. He he subtracted a portion for himself. Think about that. How often when God calls us to obey, do we stop mid-step and subtract from our obedience? We might think it's just a little, but a little disobedience is disobedience. So he subtracts. Now, let me remind you of something really important. Even though this radical exchange uh, that was erupting from this new race of people called the people of the way, Christians, it, it it was people emptying their everything and giving all. It was not the failure to participate in the financial element of this exchange that got Ananias and Sapphira killed. See, they didn't die for not giving enough. Read closely. It wasn't just their subtraction, but the deception of their subtraction. Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not at your disposal? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Now, the deed wasn't just subtracting. The deed was lying about it. Uh, the, the International Children's Bible says later when he addresses his wife, instead of saying, contrive this deed in your heart, it says, why have you let Satan rule your heart? The ICB goes hard. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? When Ananias heard these, oh, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. He heard these words and he died. That's intense. See, Ananias was blatantly rejecting the Holy Spirit's discernment 
lying. The great Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher and abolitionist, he said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. So Ananias and Sapphira were almost radical in their giving, which was already grievous to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wanted to bless them and let them be a part of something unique, even in Christian history. And so that was already a problem. But then beyond that, betraying discernment, they lied to God. And if lying is already bad, then lying to God is infinitely worse. Because consider this, the severity of any crime depends on the person being violated, right? So you punch your sister, you get a timeout. You punch the president, you get taken out. And likewise, the ugliness of a lie is determined by who we lie to, right? I'll give you an example. A while back, a, a, a telemarketer called me, and, and I said, hey, hey, I'm sorry, I'm super busy right now. But I lied because I wasn't super busy. I just didn't want to talk to him. Honestly, and I'm not making an excuse. I shouldn't have lied. I repented before God and said, next time, I'm just going to be like, no, I'm not going to talk to you right now. Um, but, but listen, even though it was a sin, th- this lie I don't think was a, 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 a lie that I needed to call an elders meeting, a special elders meeting, and confess my sin to them about. But what if, what if I lied to my wife? And not just a telemarketer. I think that's more like an elders meeting lie. Okay? Now what about when we lie to God? And what do we lie to him about? I hope that the Holy Spirit can, can help, you know, hurt your feelings a little bit about some of the lies we tell God. So, so I'll pick on me for a second. Uh, oh, uh, I was just clicking her profile picture just for a closer look to see some of the other pictures to see if I, if I really know her, um, you know, before I accept her friend request. Hello. And God says, no, son, you're just willingly walking into a trap. Or, or let me pick on others right now, uh, ladies. Uh, you know, he may really love Jesus someday and, and, and um, you know, maybe even want to marry me too. But right now it's just chill because we're just hanging out. It's not like he can, he can distract my heart from Jesus or anything. Lie. Uh, or, or this. This is in Western culture what we often struggle with. Oh, you know, Jesus is more important to me, most important in my life, even though it's primarily, if not exclusively, my job that dictates the course of my life. You know, Jesus understands. Well, no, he doesn't. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise again from the dead to have an insignificant say in the economy of your life and the course of your career. That's a lie. Or, or this one. Oh, oh, I'm not praying and devoting myself like before, but, but, but you know, God understands that I love him, and, and when I have more time, I'll give some of that to him. No. No, if you're a Christian, it's his time. It's his money. It's his body. It's his career that he's given to you 
to, to, to bless you and to provide for you like he promised, but also to provide space for his kingdom to advance through your life and to, to establish and grow his church in your life. It's his, if you're his. Because the exchange on the cross, Jesus taking our death upon himself and giving us his life because that was quintessentially radical. Therefore, our response in discipleship is a radical exchange for which any lie to God, the God that facilitated this gracious exchange, any lie is therefore radical deception. Finally, number three, radical reverence. Verse five says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, you need to know that in the Bible, anytime something is repeated verbatim, it's meant to be emphasized uh, pretty strongly. So verse 10, listen to, to the emphasis. Immediately she, Sapphira, fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Beloved, this word fear that we translate into English is the Greek word phobos, where we get our, Greek, where our, we get our English word phobia. Sometimes being a little bit scared of God in, in contrast with comfortable with God is necessary in some ways. You know, the fear of God is a fundamental ingredient to the life of a disciple. And consider these words, all who heard these things. It didn't say all who saw these things, but all who heard, meaning this story spread. Think about that. There's a missional element to the fear of God. People saw these things, and they were spreading this story around every bit as much as they were spreading the good news of Jesus dying for our sin and rising from the dead. Because even the severity of God is good news. The God who came to live the life that we should have lived and we couldn't, and died the death that we should have died in our place, and rose again verifiably in Jerusalem from the dead to give us new life. This God is no punk. His power is every bit connected to his love. And when we spread the love of God, we spread the fear of God in and through our own lives. And so, church, we need to proceed with radical reverence, with a godly fear, a godly fear that at any moment God could take our last breath from us for good reason, even if we don't understand his reason whatsoever. And we need to live with a greater reverence and gratitude that God gives us breath, especially on a cool, wonderful morning like this, and a reverence that God gives us another day to not waste. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You died to wash away our past, that we may be white as snow. And you rose 
and you're alive and you hold our future and you're present with us right now. And Lord, even here there are people who have never by faith and true allegiance said, I give myself away so you can use me. And even now as we're praying, Lord, that there, there are people that have subtracted and I'm asking for a moment in faith that they can put everything on the altar. And even as you're sitting, whether you're at home or present here, because of what Jesus has done, you can, you can literally say in your heart or even in your words praying now, God, I, I give everything to you. I'm fully yours. The promise of God is that if you believe that he died for you and rose from the dead, you can be born again, even now. Do business with God. And Jesus, we continue to pursue you. We, we know that the angels behold your burning glory. And they bow endlessly and proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, your holiness and your love are a consuming fire of united glory. So help us to love you and revere you in right measure, and may it spread like wildfire. In Jesus' name, amen.